Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Wesley, Senior Pastor of Greater Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Our mission is to reach, teach, and baptize throughout the world, beginning in our community, fulfilling the Great Commission by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit until Jesus returns. That simply means we're here to reach irreligious people and turn them into lifelong devoted followers of Jesus, equip them for a place of service in the church, and send them out on a mission for Christ in the world. We're glad you're with us today. I command blessings on you and your family today. is about discovering the purposes that God has placed you on the earth. I think that's so, so critical and so important. We, we, we can't do what we want to do because that's not what God made us to do, just whatever we want to do. God made us for his purposes and his plans. Everything you see is made for a purpose. And when God made the human being on the earth, he put purpose in mind and he planned you. Every day of your life has already been scheduled in the eons of eternity. God knew exactly when you should be born and guess what else he knows? He knows your exit date. And from your entry date to your exit date, he has a plan and a purpose for you. And what I'm trying to convey is when we don't ever search for, discover, and understand that purpose, we wander aimlessly around in life. We lose time. We lose the ability to make differences in the life of our family, community, the world, all of that is lost when we don't get lined up and in tune with God's purpose and plan for our life. That was what we talked about first, and we used Daniel as an example. Even when circumstances are adverse, God brought this man out of his hometown into another place and used him for his purpose because Daniel had an excellent spirit in him. He had the spirit of God and God was able to use him over 90 plus years of living to influence governments and nations and all. Then we talked about that God has formed us for to be family. God didn't just drop you individually so that you could go do whatever you want to do, live like you want to live, be wild, be crazy, none of that. God made you, formed you for family. Just as he put you in a human family because that human family was an incubator to teach 
behaviors and manners and appropriateness as to how to live on the earth, God placed us in a spiritual family, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, so that we could behave in ways that honor him. And, and what we discovered was that in being formed as the family, the church is to be the pillar and foundation, to be the upholder of truth, of the truth about God. So we are to hear the truth. We are to memorize the truth. We are to meditate on the truth. We are to uh, study the truth. We are to obey the truth. We are we are to defend the truth. We are to live the truth. And we are to proclaim the truth. That's the church. That's what the body, the family is supposed to do. And then we talk thirdly that we are to be, we were created to be like Christ. That is to become like Christ. And, and we know that there's a, that's, that's a work, right? Because we're not like Christ, like we need to be, right? But when we know who he is and understand the message about him, then we start moving toward him. A part of that work we have, and a part of that work is God's. And God does that work in us through our circumstances. He takes us right where we are, he takes us right in whatever condition we're in and he began to manifest himself when you know who Jesus is. In the same way that he did with Jesus, he'll do it with us. Spirit inside, that's what Jesus had. Angelic, heavenly host protection and support, same stuff you have. And if you do that well when life is over, then just as Jesus was taken up to be with God, we'll be taken up to be with God. So here we are at this fourth lesson today. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Now, when I was a kid, we'd go by mama's house at different times. You know, when I was a grown man, should I say. We were all working, and we'd go by mom's house, and she would have whatever she had prepared. Some of us got there early, so we ate. The rest of them came later, and they ate what had been prepared. So the, the team that came at 8 o'clock, they got some of the 8 o'clock stuff. You get the leftover. <laughs> you, but it's coming from the same meal. <laughs> you got me? Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30 through 37. And the Word of God says, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, 
as he journeyed came where he was and when he saw him he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him and on the morrow when he departed he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again I will repay thee which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves and he meaning the lawyer said he that showed mercy on him then said Jesus unto him go and do thou likewise this is the word of God for the people of God all right we're talking today about you were created to serve God that's the subject you were created shaped to serve God you was shaped to serve God and I can imagine the wildness that went through your mind me <laughs> you're thinking about your physical shape that's not the shape and what we're talking about is what God does to us on the inside not what God has done to us on the outside. See, we all have different shapes. Shape can be physical, yes, but it can also be an acronym. And in our church, we use it a lot of time for acronym. It stands for your spiritual gift, that's the S. H is your heart, your area of passion. The A is your abilities natural and divine abilities God give you. P is a representation of your personality or your personal choices of areas or age groups that you may enjoy more than another. And E is experience, your life experiences. All of those is what determines your shape. And all of that stuff is largely inside. What else is inside is what drives that, what drives the use of the shape. And what drives the use of the shape is the love that you have for God as it is uncovered and discovered and begin to flame up in you. And not only must you have love for God, but you also must have love for your fellow man. And, and, and this parable, even though it talks about good deeds and points out a circumstance, it is, it is a story. And, and it's, it's amazing to me when I, when I read Bible commentaries and what theologians say this should mean or imply, there are some that are trying to make this be an allegory. 
This is not an allegory. This is just a story that Jesus made up to illustrate to a man, a particular man, and show him his own lack at what he thought he was already capable and able to do. And it becomes a picture to warn us that life is, is not so much just about checking boxes and saying that we have done these good deeds. It's actually being a vessel that God can use to deliver messages of salvation and hope and personal preservation of human life. And that's all included in what this passage is about. And, and I think that we misunderstand it, and I've mentioned that earlier, and I mentioned it again, that it's, it's, it's probably one of the most misunderstood parables that Jesus spoke. And it's misunderstood because we tend to look at the good deed that the good Samaritan has done, uh, is doing in the story and, 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 and thinking that that is what the, the thrust, the drive is, and that's, that's not it. It's there, it's true, but that's not what drives the story. That's not even why the story was told. The story was told by Jesus because he had haters. And we all have haters. And haters are people who show up and try to do things to embarrass us or to show that we're not who we say we are. And they like to do it in public ways. And for Jesus, he was teaching. He had declared that, you got to understand this. He had declared he is the son of God. That he's divine. And there were people that did not like that, especially Jewish leaders in his day. They contested him at every public occasion that they could because they wanted to show him to be a fraud to the people. So that if the people had a lower opinion of Jesus, then he could be discounted as being the representative of God. You got to understand, Jewish rabbis and Jewish leaders were the teachers to the people. They were, they were a subject people during this time. Rome was the dominating world power. And, and the only freedom, really, that the Jewish people had during this time that Jesus was on the earth was their religious freedom. They had been subject for a long time now. And coming out of the Babylonian captivity, it was in Babylon that these various groups began to spring up, fraternities. And one of those fraternities was the fraternity of the Pharisees. And the Pharisee fraternity was a good fraternity of men who pledged 
an oath in front of eight other people that they would hold up every detail of the traditions of the elders and hold on to the scribal law. So here comes this man who was one of those men, one of those representatives. He was one of the teachers of the people, to the people. And he caught an opportunity while Jesus is in the public teaching to put on a display designed to embarrass him. And so he wanted to trap Jesus in a no-win situation. So he asked a question. If you want to find it, it's in the 25th verse of the same 10th chapter. Verse 25. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. That's a question that all of the Jews had on their minds. And it's a question that you hear over and over again. He wasn't the only one that asked Jesus that. Just, just drop it in your spirit. You remember that was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus later. And he asked him the same thing. Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is what Nicodemus was talking to Jesus about. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. So we know that you have some information about this eternal life thing. And I want to know about it. And, and, and they had their ideas about it. Mainly their ideas were they thought that they would get eternal life through just being good Jews. And that included being circumcised the eighth day. That is following the rules and regulations as had been given. They were the chosen seed of Abraham. And they knew that they were the people of God. And so just by being myself, being a good Jew, as long as I don't violate anything, then I should inherit this eternal life. But in spite of that knowledge of what they had as a heritage, that was still a sneaky suspicion that maybe I'm, I, I might miss it. I might not have all that I need. So let me just check. To make sure if there's something else that I need to know that I don't mess around here and miss eternal life because of my ignorance. So he asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers the question in verse 26 with a question. He says, what does the law say? In other words, he said, how do you read that? How do you interpret that? Because Jesus understood what Jewish lawyers did. He understood that they recited certain passages of scripture every day, at least twice a day. And he knew what they were. And so he's asking this man, what does the law say? What is it you've been reciting? And the man answers correctly. It says, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, which was Moses' writing, Thou shalt love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you got it. That's exactly what it says. He said, go and do that, and you'll have eternal life. Now, go back to what, it, what Jesus was really saying. He was saying, okay, if you really got it going like you think you do, love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly, not just once, not just every now and then, but every day of your life, don't miss a moment of giving God the best. Don't miss any opportunity of serving your fellow man. Do it and you will have eternal life. You will have earned your way. Now the man should have recognized right then that that was an impossibility. And he should have fallen on his face and on his knees before Jesus and he should have said, oh, Lord, if it's up to me to do it like that, I'm going to miss. Now, let me, let, me, let, me, let me be honest with you. If it's up to me to love God perfectly every single time, every single day, I'm going to miss. And if it's up to me to love you and every one of you perfectly, I'm not going to make it. And I know I'm not by myself. <laughs> the truth is, it's an indictment against the whole human race. Because no one can do that. And he should have fallen on his face. And he should have said, Lord, I can't do that. I can't do that. But the text says, rather than him doing that, he sought to justify himself. That is, he wanted to make himself look good and he skips all over the part about loving God with all of my heart because he's implying that I got that under control. And he goes right to the issue and who is my neighbor? He, in other words, what he is saying is, I, I, I think I got loving God exactly like I need to. And I think I got loving my neighbor like I need to, unless you have a different definition about who is my neighbor. And so that spins the story. So Jesus said, okay, you want to know who your neighbor is? And he tells this made-up story. It's not real. It didn't happen. It's just a story Jesus comes up with to illustrate to this man that he does not have a clue and that he does not have the right kind of love for God nor his neighbor. And he convicts him to lead him to pray for mercy. Now, whether he ever does or not, we don't know. The story ends. So let's look at it. Listen at what Jesus said. He said, a certain man, no particular one, was traveling from Jerusalem down the Jericho road to Jericho. Jerusalem, and some of us have been, is a, a city on a hill. When you leave Jerusalem going south, 
you're going down toward the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest level on planet Earth. So you're going down three, 4,000 feet in just a short period of time. So it has deep drops and curves and things. And if you ever went down that road on a bus and you look out the window, you would, you would mess yourself up because that bus looked like it's leaning over in one of those crevices. And so you, you can't look out the window if you're riding on the bus, okay? So just if you go, please remember that. All right? It was a dangerous highway. In the Old Testament, it was known as a blood highway because robbers really did hang out there. And so the story, while it's not a true story, it is real enough for people who lived in that era and lived in that place to understand and imagine what this could be. And so he said, a certain man going down that road fell into the hands of some robbers. And they did just what robbers do. They beat him up. They beat him bad. They stripped him of his clothes. They took whatever resources he had and they left him on that road half dead. Now listen, he could have died there because it's usually a lonely road and it's not heavily populated so it, it may be that it might have been days before anyone came down there to discover him. But Jesus wants to give a little hope in the story. So he says, and there happened to come that way a priest, a religious man, one who's at the higher echelon of the Jewish culture, one who was uh, one of those 24 members of the 24 course of Jews who went and worked in the temple in Jerusalem and he comes by one who knowed the word of God, who knew what God said, who recited the word every day, who knew that God was concerned about people who were misfortunate. And so he comes past the man and he sees him and he turns and goes in the opposite direction. Wow. Then he says, and there came a Levite. A Levite was another member of the ecclesiastical community. He was at the lower level of the priesthood. They all came from the tribe of Levi, but the priests came from the family of Aaron. They all were sons of Jacob, but they were divided based upon what their lot of their purpose in life had been determined to be by God. And so Levi comes, who knows the scripture as well, and he sees the man and he looks and he passes by and go in the opposite direction as well. Let me stop right here. Because that's what most commentators do. When you read this, if you look at the, my preach brothers and sisters, if you're reading in commentaries, they're going to stop and you're going to read all of this long stuff and what those commentators are going to talk about is why the priest didn't go over there. What was he thinking? 
Some commentators even said the priest didn't go over there because he would defile himself if he touched a dead body and had to go to the temple. Other commentators said, well, he wouldn't be touching a dead body because he was going in the opposite direction from Jerusalem. So he's probably going home and he'll have time to be ceremonially clean before he go back to the temple. And other priests, other commentators are saying things like, well, maybe he didn't go over there because he didn't want the same fate to happen to him. Maybe the robbers were still in the area and if he stopped to help the man, the robbers would do to him what had been done to the man. All kind of speculation. And it's amazing because this is not true. There's not a man. This is a made up story by Jesus. So all of that speculation is for nothing. Because the point that Jesus is trying to make very simply is here are two people who should know the word of God, who declare that they are Christian, who declare that they have a right standing with God and see an opportunity and miss it. That's Jesus' point. And may I pause again and drop this bunt on you? That there are a whole lot of people who sit in buildings like this on Sunday and they look so prim and proper and ecclesiastical strong. And if you listen to them talk, you think that they just came straight from heaven. Oh, praise the Lord. They came and said, Lord, they praise the Lord. And they got big crosses hanging around their neck and dangling. Everything is just. And what is pointing out, what it is pointing out is that these two men did not love God. And because they did not love God, they therefore could not love the man who had been victimized. And that's where I want you to understand. If God doesn't work on your inside, if God doesn't fix your heart, you're not going to be able to, quote unquote, serve him. You might go through a motion you might participate in some activity, but it'll be shallow at best. That's what has happened to the church. The church has made a bunch of liars out of people and has developed a bunch of hypocritical personalities. And so consequently, people come and they think that if I sit in the building and look well and sound holy, then people would think that I am. And if I do one or two external things that look like I'm doing something that I should be acknowledged for, then God himself must be pleased. And that is far from the truth. That's the point. Are you hearing me? All right, now watch, watch, watch what happens. Because the story turns. The story turns because here comes a Samaritan. And a Samaritan is the least likely person 
the Samaritan and the Jews were enemies. They did not like each other. And they, this not liking each other was deeply seated in the hearts of both the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, you remember why and how they got to be Samaritans. Samaritans were a first, see, the Jewish community is a pure race. All Jews marry only Jews. That was God's word. Don't mix, don't mingle, don't marry outside of your, your culture and your race. And when the Old Testament writing was given, when the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, ten tribes, were carried away into captivity, the Assyrians brought back people from other places that they had conquered and put them in the land of Canaan. And there were a few Jews that were left there. And because everybody was gone, they mixed and they married. And they had children that were called Samaritans. And the other Jews who were in the southern part of the kingdom down in Judah didn't like that because they felt like they had violated the purity of the race. And so there was a hatred toward these people. Later on, the southern kingdom was captured and carried into captivity in Babylon. And when, that means they left the Samaritans there. And so when the people came from the southern kingdom, came out of Babylon where Daniel and all them had been, in Babylon for 70 years and they came back into the land the Samaritans were opening their arms saying come on welcome let us help you build the house of God again let us help you build the temple and all and the Jews said ain't no way remember Sanballat and Tobiah they were, they were those Samaritans and the Jews pushed back against them so what happened the Samaritans went and they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And, and eventually, 120 years later, the Jews tore it down. So the Samaritans had nowhere to worship. That's why when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, and she said, you Jews said Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. And us Samaritans said Mount Gerizim is the place you ought to worship. Jesus said, wait, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. And in truth. So, so, so I'm, 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 I'm just trying to help you see who this is that's coming down the road now. This is a hated Samaritan in the minds of the Jews. This would be a stark enemy. This would be somebody that you would expect. Ain't no way he's fixing to stop and help. And he does just the complete opposite. When he comes to the place and he sees the man there, he stops. And he begins to act. Look at the kind of love he shows. He began to bind up the man's wounds where they had beat him and had left him half dead. He's bleeding all over the place. And he immediately starts tearing his clothes and making tourniquets to stop the bleeding. He goes into his bag and probably pulls out some of his own clothes to put on the man because the man was left naked. 
or at least down to his underwear. And so the man puts on his own, put him on his own clothes. He takes out oil and he begins to pour the oil into the wounds to kind of soothe it. That oil would be slick and would soften the tissues and make it feel better. And then he would take the wine and he doesn't dribble it out. He pours it lavishly as an antiseptic into the man's wounds. And then he doesn't stop there. He picks the man up and he puts the man on his own beast of travel. Whether it was his donkey or his mule, he throws him across the saddle or across the back of the animal. And the man walks, the Samaritan walk, pulling the animal with the man on it. And he carries him to an inn. Now, don't misunderstand that. It wasn't a five-star hotel. It was one of them cheap flea bags. Because that's what was kind of on the side of the road. And it would be at least somewhere off the street. It would be somewhere he could find a cart or a mat that he could lay the man on. And listen, what else he does? He spends the night there taking care of the man. So he's given of his time. He's given of his talent. He's given of his everything he has. And then in the morning... Guess the man decides, the Samaritan, it's time for me to go on about my business. He goes to the front desk, to the innkeeper, and he takes out two denaria, two pence, which was worth two months of lodging. And he pays the innkeeper, and he opens an account, and he says, listen, I'm going if you have to spend any more than what I've already given you, when I come back, I'll pay the rest. Then Jesus turns around and he looked at the Jewish lawyer and he said, now which one of these do you think was a neighbor? And it was very obvious. And the man had to say, the one who showed mercy. Now, at that point, again, if he missed it the first time, at that point, I've been saying, Lord, help. I've been saying, listen, I, I can't do it like that. I would have been saying, oh, please, have mercy on me. Show me how to love like that. Help me to love like that. That's where we are. Jesus told that Jewish lawyer, he said, I'll tell you what you do. You go and you live like that, like the Samaritan did. You show that kind of love, and you'll have eternal life. So, so, so the point of this parable is not about good deeds. The point of this parable is about what it takes to have eternal life. Now, you get eternal life one or two ways. Either you do it or you rely on the mercy of God. I'm here today not because I'm good. I'm here today because God is good. I'm here today not because I have lived so right, but God has been so merciful. And we need his mercy. We need his example. We need his power infused in us to help us to live right. We can't love God perfectly. 
Don't you know you have a flaw inside of you? It's called a sin nature. And that sin nature is selfish. And I don't care how you try. The Apostle Paul, who was one of the great men of the Bible, wrote 14 books of the New Testament. They had to declare in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? He said, the good that I would, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do is the very thing that I end up doing. When I desire to do good, evil is always present. And you know it's true in you too. So we know that we can't love God perfectly. Left to ourselves, because there's nothing inside of us outside. If you remove the spirit of God from you and you just have the natural you, you have no way of loving God. And you certainly have no way of loving someone else. The only other person that you come close to loving like that is you. And you will love you like that. You do love you like that. Let you hurt. Let you bleed. And you will go see somebody. Stop this bleeding now. Give me some Advil. Give me some set, etc. Give me some Aleve. Give me something. Right? If you're naked, you're going to find something to put on. May not be what somebody else thinks, but it's going to be something to cover your nakedness. If, 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 you, if you're sick, you're going to go somewhere and get seen about. So you will love you like that. Loving the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. You can love yourself, but you don't love your neighbor. And you can't do it by yourself. You need the infusion of the Holy Spirit. And so in a real sense, so, so just, and this is what Jesus is doing. He wants, he wants to minimize this notion of, okay, that you're good by yourself. What he's trying to do is lead this man, this one Jewish man to him and asking, leading him that he might cry out unto God for God to have mercy on him and to change him. And that's our point today. We need God to change us. If we've been created, if we've been shaped to serve and we're not serving and we're not serving because we don't have the right kind of love for God and the right kind of love for our fellow man, we need God to change us. These men came, they talking about adopting children and supporting orphans and other things like that. You can't do that on your own. You might do it once. You might make a donation and give you a feel good. You might stop at the interstate and see some man standing there with a cup in his hand and you might think, okay, I can give him a little something and that'll make me feel like I've done something. But you cannot do that consistently every time you see it. Not without the love of God. So we need to be crying, Lord, have mercy on us. What we need to do, what we need to understand is there are three different attitudes that's shown here in this text. The first attitude that we see is an attitude that, yeah, I'm going to keep my distance. I see there's trouble over there. Too bad, so sad, so sorry, I ain't coming your way. I'm going to keep my distance. 
and like the priest, we'll pass by on the other side. Then we got the attitude of the Levite. We'll, we'll be curious. We want to see what's happening. Maybe you sure look bad. Mm-mm. And then we're going to pass by on the other side. Curious, but we're not going to do anything about it. We'll look at all of the homeless children. We'll look at all of the suffering in Ukraine. We'll look at all of the world's problem and we'll say, shame. We'll look at the school system and say, what's wrong with those people? We'll look at the drive-bys and all of the shootings and all of the stuff in the community and we'll say, that's a shame. That's sad. Oh, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to talk to little Pookie. We're not going to say nothing to Nene, Ricky, Riri. We're not going to tell Quisha, put that up. Stop talking like that. Don't talk back to your mother like that. Because we don't want the same fate. We don't want Quisha to turn at us and say it back to us. So we don't say anything. The attitude that we need to model is the attitude that say, God help me to love like you love. Because that's really what it's showing the Samaritan's attitude toward the man is God's attitude toward us. He loves us in spite of us. How in the world can you love an enemy? We were once enemies with God. But he came, Jesus came into the earth to knock down the middle wall of petition between us that separated Jew and Gentile titles and he made out of his body one new thing called the church. And we are that body. And we are the love like that. So our attitude has got to be, God, help us to love like you do, like you love me. Help me to take that same level of compassion and concern and direct it toward others. Then I tell you, practically, what else we must do? We, we must ask God to, to open our eyes because we need to see. We, we need to start seeing needs. Needs are in front of us every day. Needs are in our homes and we walk right past it. We walk past brothers and sisters. We right, walk right past husbands and wives. We walk, walk right past children, aunts and uncles. Hadn't spoken in years. And we say nothing about it. So we got to pray, God, help us to see the opportunities that's in front of us. I was teasing this morning. I was talking about when I was a kid coming up in church. The only serving that we thought we could do was sing in the choir or be an usher. But God has revealed that he has placed gifts and gifted people in the body. And each of us have been given those tools, those spiritual gifts are your tools that God gives you to use. No, you might not go to Africa, you might not go to Mexico, you might not go to India, but God has given you something to support those who do go. So you got to open your eyes to see the opportunities in front of you. Also got to recognize the, the personal pain that other people feel. You might have it going on, you might be getting ready to have a Merry Christmas, but somebody is going to be hurt. You're going to wake up Inside of a beautiful, warm, comfortable house, I am too, if the Lord continued to let me breathe. But there will be people somewhere that won't wake up like that. 
I'll have family around some, at some point in the day. Somebody will say, hey, I love you. I'm thinking about you. I want you to have this. But there'll be so many others that no one will say anything to. We'll have a feast by the middle of the day. Be food everywhere. But there'll be people who won't know where the next meal is going to come from. So we got we to become sensitive to the needs and to the pain and to the plight of other people. We're going to be the body of Christ if we're going to be the church. We got to understand we were created. We were shaped to serve. But that service can only come out of hearts that have been tempered, mashed, and molded, and squeezed, and put into position by God. And that's who we got to be. What happened to this guy? What happened to this lawyer? Did he repent? It's probably unlikely. Did he make it to heaven? We don't know. It's a story. But there's nothing that suggests that he did. So what am I saying? Everybody that's confronted by the gospel will not change because there are some people who would dig in their heels and they would rather die than to ask God to change their hearts. But I'm going to ask you today, while you sit, pray silently and ask God to change you. Ask God to show you more mercy and show you how your eyes can be open and how you might be able to love him more and as a result love others more. Small ways at first and maybe gradually. You know, we use this phrase Good Samaritan as an idiom in our world today. When somebody does something kind, we'll say, oh, that's a Good Samaritan. But are we really? I don't want to be cheap. I don't want to be has-been. I don't want to be half-hearted in nothing. I want to be committed to the plan and purposes of God. So if you're going to do something, spend what it takes. Do what it takes. Because know that in the end, you're not going to be able to beat God given. He may be putting you to the test. He may be checking you out to see if I can trust you with more. So take what they give you. And use it to help. And then watch what God does to return to you. Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord will pay off, won't it pay off? Anybody believe that? After a while, don't you know it's the truth? But I believe serving God pays off now. I don't think you have to wait. I think some of the past service is paying off now. I woke up this morning. I'm here today. Listen, I almost was late because I had a choice of what I wanted to wear. <laughs> and there was a time when it was Sunday morning, that was a very easy decision. That was one shirt. That was one string tie. That was one pair of shoes.
that was the Sunday go to meeting shoes. But God has blessed. Serving the Lord. Come on, man. Come on, bring it on. We're going to open the door now. Give you an opportunity to make good on your choice. Pray where you are. God, forgive me. Forgive me of my lack of love. Forgive me of my lack of love for you, for my lack of love for my fellow man. Open my eyes. Help me to be the man, the woman, the girl you want me to be. I believe you are the son of God. I believe you came into the earth, died on the cross, was raised the third day. And I want you to come in my heart. You prayed like that. You want your life changed. Give it to God. Serving the Lord. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll pay hard for the song. After a while. Listen at the song. Serving the Lord. We'll pay Keep on working every day, whatever is right, God said he paid, serving the Lord, oh, I know it's going to pay off after a while. Oh, yes, it will. Serving the Lord will pay off after a while. Whatever the price, God said he paid, serving the Lord, oh, I know it's going to pay off after a while. starry crown I know my way is gonna get brighter even though my friends sometimes they'll let me down but I, oh what a time that will be with my savior my Savior's face, I look up and see, praising and serving the Lord. Oh, I know it's gonna pay off after a while. Hey, friends, this is Dr. Michael Wesley, senior pastor of Greater Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and I know by now you know about this new book that we have released. 
Not only have we released it, the book is here. And it's an excellent read, not just because I wrote it, but because of the content and what it conveys. It tells the story of where marriage comes from. Marriage comes from God. And I need us to know that. And if you are in love and are considering this particular path for your life, the content of this book will help you along the way. Not only do we talk about where marriage comes from, we talk about keys to compatibility, what's necessary to be effective in marriage. I have a little acronym in the book, it's called CUT, C-U-T, Communication, Understanding, Trust. That becomes the basic formula that's necessary for any marriage to be successful. Not only do we talk about those things and the keys to compatibility, we also talk about staying in love. Once you're in love, we certainly want to remain in love. And some may wonder, well, what if I married the wrong person? We even deal with that as well. So this is a great opportunity for you to make sure that you're in line with what God's will is for your life. God bless you. Please follow the prompts on the screen that you may know how to get your personal copy of this book. Friends, this is Michael Wesley, Senior Pastor of Greater Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We really appreciate all of the love and support that you have shown to us through these broadcasts. We've been hearing from people and our friends all over, and we want you to pray about being a supporter and a prayer partner and a supporter of this television ministry. If you believe the Holy Spirit has ministered the Word of God to you and you'd like to see this ministry continue and to share it with your friends, please consider being a supporter. Follow the prompts on the screen. We would love to hear from you.